you're listening to the New World Order, episode 356. My name is Klaatu, and in this episode we're going to talk about Ghost Script. Ghost Script is a... Actually, you know what? Let's let's pause for a minute. I should mention, and this is, this is significant, I should mention that Microsoft recently apologized for all of the mean things that it ever said about Linux back in the 90s or the 2000s or whenever Microsoft was going on and on about how terrible Linux was. I thought that was an interesting little bit of news because no one was really asking for an apology that I'm aware of. I mean, I guess everyone was kind of asking for an apology, really, but but there wasn't like a call for it. There wasn't a big uprising, and people weren't saying it weren't, people weren't demanding an apology. And Microsoft recently apologized. It's a pretty big deal, I think, isn't it? Is that a big deal? I'm not sure. I mean, let's let's look at other things that 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 people have been calling for recently. For instance. Microsoft has a lot of property. They have a lot of intellectual property, as they say. They've they've got code that that is not open source, and they keep saying they really, really love open source. And it's kind of interesting that they that they say that they love open source, and they do release some open source lately. And yet there are lots of little little caveats after a lot of those things. You know, the VS Code isn't actually released under an open source license if you look at it i mean the code is the source code is actually open source you can you can go get it on github which microsoft owns and i mean that's neither here nor there they just happen to own github um you can go get the code at vs for vs code and you can compile it but the thing that you compile won't be vs code it will be something called code dash oss vs code branded vs code with a trademark and the logo and everything from from Microsoft is called uh, or is VS Code and it's released under the Microsoft software license. So yes, it's open source, and yet there there's this weird kind of little asterisk at the end of it. Just that that one final one little gotcha. You know, it's like with the Microsoft, nothing can ever be sort of exactly what it seems, right? It's it's like there's always this little sort of there's a, there's always a footnote. That's the word I'm looking for. Footnote. There's always a footnote at this at the end of everything that Microsoft does with open source. So it it, it is interesting that yes, they are apologizing for all the mean things that they said about Linux. I don't know that they're reimbursing people money that that people actually had to spend in in defending themselves against Microsoft litigation. I don't know if they've gone that far. I don't know that they've responded to the Free Software Foundation's request for them to open source as a sign of goodwill to open source the 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 code of windows 7 which is end of life now so it wouldn't really be that big of a deal in theory right all i'm saying is that there's a there's a there, there's there's always that question of what someone says versus what someone does and with microsoft it it doesn't quite just seem to be really clear that there's a, a complete alignment there now the 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 trouble with viewing something this way is that you've got you, you, there's there's a danger of sort of never letting anything ever be good enough. For instance, here I am critiquing an unrequested apology from Microsoft. Of course, I'm I'm saying unrequested, and that that all that means is that there's a bunch of other stuff in the news right now, probably such that that I haven't heard the requests because I'll bet some people out there would have very are very happy to hear this this apology it it probably comes 22 20 years too late for them and and as i say there's probably um a, a good contingency of developers out there who've been 
hurt financially by the past Microsoft, for whom this apology doesn't quite cover the costs, doesn't quite do, doesn't quite smooth over all the the literal damage done by Microsoft's behavior. So maybe calling it an a, a unrequested apology is a little bit strong. Either way, here I am critiquing the apology while at the same time acknowledging the apology and 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 sort of saying thank you, Microsoft, for that apology. But here I am critiquing it. And, and complaining about something, for instance, oh, well, Microsoft hasn't open-sourced Windows 7 as a sign of goodwill, as has been explicitly requested by the FSF and, and some thousand members of the FSF. And you could see a, a possible reality where Microsoft concedes and says, okay, well, good idea. That would be a great way to make amends. We will open-source this old end-of-life code to Windows 7 that we're not using anymore. We've end-of-lifed it. We're not maintaining it. We're not doing anything with it. So here it is. It's open source now. There you go. Would anyone benefit from that? Probably not. Just just the entire Reactos, um, ReactOS scene. Um, but would anyone else? Nah, probably not. Just all of Wine, HQ, uh, and Proton. But Aside from that, and the, the thousands and thousands of users of all of those technologies that I've just mentioned, other than that, not a big deal, right? It would be a sign of goodwill, be very nice of them to do. But then mightn't we, could we could we see in this possible alternate reality, me announcing Microsoft has, you know, open-sourced this code, but why haven't they open-sourced the code to Windows 8 or Windows 10? In other words, is there anything Microsoft can do realistically that will ever be enough for people like me? And is there really any use in people like me setting Microsoft up for failure. I mean, we can keep extending this goalpost of what Microsoft has to do in order to make us happy. And and in the end, we'll just never be happy, and Microsoft will never sort of get into our good graces. And so what's really the point of that, other than just wanting to hold a grudge? I think it might be interesting for some of us to lay out exactly what Microsoft would have to do in order to make us happy. What could they possibly do to get into our good graces as free software, whatever that means, I mean, liberated software, open source software enthusiasts, what could they possibly do to get into our good graces after after a history of rivalry? I asked that question to myself after kind of pondering all of this, and I realized that the answer is actually really, really, really easy. The answer is to open source their code. I know that seems pretty simple, almost too simple, but in truth, that's it. That's the goalpost. It's not actually moving. Apologies are nice. Opening end-of-life code would be nice. They are not doing that, just to be clear. I've been talking a lot about it in, in this little intro. To be clear, they have not actually done that, but it would be nice. Releasing source code is, is great, but being true to the, the claim that Microsoft loves open source, the way to get into the good graces of the open source community wholesale is to open source your code. Now, would that do it for everyone? No, obviously not. Open source isn't a conglomerate, right? We are a diverse community. Some people are not going to like Microsoft forever. They're not going to trust them forever. And and a lot of them have every reason and every right for that feeling. I mean, let's let's be honest. Microsoft has made some really really solid enemies over their over their history. And when you threaten people's livelihood and when you sue people for developing programs on their computer for other and and then share sharing it for free for everyone to use, you, you do tend to make, you know, that that person isn't going to really 
trust you probably ever again. That's just how that's just how things are. And so you have to obviously there are some casualties that are not going to be sort of brought back from that from, from that side of of the of the equation. But for Microsoft to to be seen as a as an open source ally, I think the easiest, quickest, most absolute method for them to achieve that would be to be an open source company, to embrace open source in the way that their marketing campaign to at least developers makes it appear that they're willing and eager to do. And I think that's one of the one of the troubling things about Microsoft is that to developers, they won't shut up about open source. It just seems like all they talk about is the open source part of of their plan to develop but to the general public they're not saying anything about that and and pretty much for the general public there there you wouldn't know that there was anything happening with Microsoft you wouldn't ever know that they'd had a huge life-changing change of heart if you were in the just general public and you weren't listening to that sort of thing and that seems odd because if Microsoft had 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 this big revelation and this big change of heart, why wouldn't they be talking about it? Why wouldn't they be telling the public about it? Why wouldn't they be telling their customers that the exciting news is that Microsoft is now an open source company? Well, it's because they're not an open source company. They're not going to open source Windows. They're not going to open source a bunch of stuff. They're going to continue to be open source for developers. And they're going to continue to talk to developers about how much they love open source. And, you know, developers are are going to benefit from that. It's, it's really hard actually not to benefit from open source, which again is, is why it's so strange to me that they wouldn't mention this to their users. Open source is for everyone. By 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 actual definition, that's what open source is. It is it is for everyone and it benefits everyone. Microsoft should embrace the thing that they're advertising. This whole open source change of heart that they've had. They should do that. They should be earnest about it and they should do it completely. There shouldn't be any caveats, no more footnotes. They should just be open source. Of, of all the companies in the world set up to make that work, surely Microsoft is the one that could make that work for everyone. So I don't think this is a, a, a matter of people just sort of not trusting Microsoft and, and Microsoft never being able to be good enough for these skeptics. I think this is more of a case of Microsoft not actually doing what they're saying. And that's a little bit concert- disconcerting. It's, it, it concerns me a little bit. Although, frankly, I'm not enough in the Microsoft world, uh, well, that is to say I'm not really in the Microsoft world at all, but but I'm not really invested in, my, in Microsoft in any way that, that really, whether they're open source or not, for me, doesn't doesn't directly affect me. So it's, it's difficult for me to sort of care about the parts that aren't open source, because it just doesn't seem to affect me personally. I mean, I know it does ultimately, because the more it festers, the more it's going to sort of grow and expand and sort of find its way into my, into my actual, you know, into the world that I actually live in. I mean, there, there's surely some component of some government website out there that I'm going to have to go to that's going to suddenly demand that I do something a certain way because, you know, the source code isn't there for it to be expanded into other places. Microsoft being open source is a a nice to have for me. When I see something that's open source and it's from Microsoft, that's cool. That's neat. It's neat that they're releasing that. It's neat that I could use that if I wanted to. When it's not open source, I'm just kind of not aware of it. It's sort of out of sight, out of mind. But for a lot of people, that's not the way it is. And it would be a huge, huge deal if Microsoft would take open source to the common folk to just the general computer user. Bring open source to those people. Help open source enthusiasts demonstrate to people that open source isn't a specialized 
it's a specialist uh, discipline that it's for, for everyone to be able to do. Everyone can benefit from it. Microsoft could make that a reality, and it'd be nice if they would. Okay, now it is time, honestly, to talk about Ghost Script, but oh wait, first, let's go get a cup of coffee. <laughs> assuming you've got a cup of coffee in front of you now and I mean I do right here so uh, we'll we'll start talking about ghost script and ghost script is a very cool cool tool it's a lot of fun I've used it uh, quite a bit and so I'm gonna just try to sort of cover what it is and how I use it and then from there ideally you'll be set to explore it even further and maybe find out how you might use it whether you're sort of a normal plain old user like me or a fancy developer who needs the GhostScript API or whatever else. So GhostScript is the free and open source version of PostScript. That's P-O-S-T script, PostScript. It is a interpreter for PostScript file. That's pretty much what it what it does. And it is something that you you may have heard of, possibly. I mean, you you may have noticed it when installing packages. You know, it comes up often enough. I feel. Um, I mean, I had to do a lot of printer support at an old old job, so I I kind of got uncomfortably familiar with Fumatic and GhostScript in in ways that they weren't necessarily meant to be used all of the time. I mean, they were, but I'm just saying that they it was there were difficult printers out there and the only thing that would make them work on the platforms that they needed to work on was was GhostScript uh, and sometimes Fumatic and sometimes the combination of the two. And interestingly, these platforms weren't even always Linux. A lot of these were Mac computers that I was supporting. So, kind of funny that um, these humble little open source projects like GhostScript and Fumatic and Cups, of course, were were the, the, the ways that like these big, sometimes fancy industrial printers would, would talk at all to the computer. Anyway, I'm a big fan of GhostScript, such as it is. Um, I, I, am, I am inordinately fond of a bunch of software around the PostScript format. And, and I say inordinately because I don't really like the postscript format. I don't like PDF. I don't like any of that stuff. And yet you kind of have to like it because for better or for worse, postscript is the common, it, it is the lingua franca of printers. And I say for better or for worse, and I suspect worse because it is by Adobe. And I don't really consider Adobe to be one of those companies that does a whole lot for the greater common good. That's just not their motivation. They, they do stuff so that they can continue to dominate the, the graphic space. But as is often the case, the fallout of total unreasonable corporate domination of an industry has been that there is a, that, that, that ha, there's there's arisen a kind of standard, and the standard is PostScript, which means that if you buy a printer in the modern day, the, the chances are 99.8% 
positive that that printer is a postscript printer. So if you throw a postscript, a postscript file at that printer, you will have rendered on whatever output it uses uh, pretty much exactly what you saw on your screen. And that's a good thing. I mean, that's the ideal. That That is what we want. In order to do that with open source software, you can use GhostScript. So the sort of the, the, the canonical kind of obvious use of GhostScript would be to send a file to a printer. Now you don't have to do this with GhostScript. This is something that happens usually in the background. You don't even have to think about it, but you could you could do it if you wanted to. So you could do, for instance, GhostScript and then dash S. Dash S is for string. So dash S and then right after the dash S, I don't think you can put a space there. I could be wrong, but I don't think you can. Dash S device equals, and then whatever the device, you know, whatever your your printer is called. Now, if you'll recall from my, my CUPS episode, you kind of have to find out that the name of that printer yourself with LP, for instance, LP stat would, would give that information to you. So... If I put in LP stat, I could find out that my, my printer name, that, that isn't actually hooked up to my computer right now, but it, it knows that it exists, is HP underscore laserjet underscore P2015 dash 43. And then some name of a, a postscript file. So let's pretend like it's called myfile.ps. And then press return, and that would send that postscript file to that device. Now it doesn't always have to be... Well, I, actually, before we, we move on from there, we can also intercept the post... Or, or I shouldn't say intercept, I should say we could filter. We can filter that file before it reaches the printer. So for instance, let's say that we needed to guarantee that the resolution is going to be 300 uh, by 300. Then you could do in dash R for resolution, and then 300 x 300. The x, uh, so x times y, 300, uh, 300 times 300. And then myfile.ps. That would send this postscript file. Postscript files don't natively have a resolution. That's the, the point of postscript. So if you're defining the resolution, I don't know why you would have to do that yourself, but if you wanted to, you could, uh, and then and then send it to the printer, and then the printer would, would print it out at a certain resolution. So there you go. That's that's the sort of the easy and obvious use case of, of GhostScript. It's, it's also the most boring um, use case of, of GhostScript. So we'll get into something more interesting momentarily. But before we do that, uh, I will say that you could also do things like uh, send it to a pipe. You'd send it through... Um, a pipe to LPR. And to do that, you set your device, or rather, uh, you set your output file to percent pipe percent and then LPR, for instance, if that's what you're sending it to. Or you could send it to, um, I, I, I wanted to say PR, but I don't know why you would pipe, pipe, pipe postscript to PR. But anyway, yeah, so let's say just LPR. Then the, and LPR obviously is going to send it to your default printer, so that would be um, that would be how to do that. You could also send it to standard out. I don't know why you would want to do that, but you could dash s output file equals percent standard out percent. That'll send your your output to your standard out instead. Maybe you need to see what what that output looks like. That's how you could do that. And and there are lots of different different options that you can use. Uh, dash s paper size equals 
A4, sets it to an A4 paper size, dash S paper size equals legal, sets it to legal size, letter, letter size, and so on. But the question here is, what is it really doing? Like, what, what does all of this mean? Well, PostScript is, is a language. It's a computer language, or, or rather a computer-to-printer language. And so GhostScript interpreting it is, is a lot like when you run a Python application or, you know, a Python file, a Python script in, in Python, or when you run a bash script in bash, and so on. This is something that has been written by someone, and then this program on your computer interprets it and, and follows commands. That's what PostScript is, and the GhostScript application is the thing that runs the PostScript. PostScript, the, the PostScript script. So how do you make one? Well, you can, obviously, I mean, we just talked about uh, InScript, the in the previous episode, we could where you convert text files to PostScript. So I mean, you could you could absolutely do that. We can generate a PostScript file pretty easily with InScript, right? So if we do an echo, I don't know, G, just the the letter G, uh, and then pipe that to InScript, and set the output file to example. .ps. Now we have one page, one copy left in example.ps. And if we look at example.ps in Emacs or, or something, then you'll you'll see PostScript in, in its rawest form. And I gotta say, it's not pretty. So this is literally one 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 letter, the letter G in in PostScript, and it's 427 lines. 400. Nope, sorry, 472. 472 lines. That's um, that's just phenomenal. That's um, that's a very verbose scripting language. I think you'll agree. Okay, so that it's kind of useless to look look at that to understand PostScript. So instead, let's just write some PostScript ourselves. So this is really rudimentary PostScript, believe me. It's not something that 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 anyone's going to be proud of or envious of, but it, it it'll get us somewhere. It'll get us it'll get us some output. So the first, a PostScript file needs to open up with percent exclamation point ps for PostScript. Now optionally, you can do a version as well. So that would be like dash Adobe dash 3.0. That's what InScript dumped out for me. But I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to be, I, I, I don't care what version. We're, we're, we're doing the basics here. So percent exclamation point PS. And that's capital P, capital F. Next line, we'll set a line width. We want this to be um, a rather pronounced line. We want it to be pretty obvious for ourselves. So we're going to do 1.0. And then the postscript command set line width. That's set line width. All one string. No white spaces. Just 1.0 space set line width. And then we're going to tell it where to start. So we're going to just start at the lower left corner of the page. And this is this takes a lot of thinking for me to get that straight because I'm generally used to 0, zero being either the smack dab middle of the media or the upper left corner. But for PostScript, it's the bottom left corner by default. So we'll, we'll tell it to uh, start at 0, and uh, let's do 0, 30. So we're going to start at 0 and then 30, and we're going to set, we can use a new command, PostScript command, to do a new path. New path, all one string, and then move to. So we want to start our new our, our new path at 0, 30. The next line, we're going to go to 30, 30, and the command there is line 2. If you've ever used turtle or anything like that, this is effectively like we're saying put the pen down when you're moving. So rather than just moving to a point on the page, 
we are drawing a line. What line are we drawing? Well, a 1.0 thick line. Doesn't have any color or anything like that yet. We're just drawing a line. It's a path. All right, next line, uh, next, next line in our code, we're going to do 30 space 0 space line 2. So again, we're, we're moving from whatever point we're at now, 30-30, to 30-0 uh, with the pen on the paper, as it were. So this isn't just a move, this is a draw, line 2. And then uh, our, our final line that we're going to draw is to 0 space 0 space line 2. So we're, now we're back at the beginning, or we're, we're back in the corner of the page, rather. I could have done that differently, I could have done 0-0, new path, move 2, but um, I'm just, I, I, I'm doing it from 0-30 over, and then 30, 30 up, or rather 30 up along this 30x axis, and then back over to 0 while I'm at 30y, uh, and then down to 0, 0 while, um, yeah, so that's closing, that's closing that path. Of course, it's not actually closing that path. We have to tell PostScript that we want to close that path. We've drawn a square, and now we're done with this path. So the command for that on its, on its own line is close path c l o s e p a t h okay now the uh to to give it color we need to use a command call, ca called uh set gray and that's it's a weird command and we'll get a little bit more into it in a moment but uh if you just do zero space set gray that's s e t g r a y and then finally we'll apply everything that we've done which is the word stroke S-T-R-O-K-E, the final line of our little command. All right, I'm going to do zero set gray stroke. Okay, got it. Okay, so now I've saved that as example 1.ps, and I'm going to launch it with GhostScript. So GS, and then example 1.ps. Now what you should see on your screen, if you were to follow along with this, uh, is a blank page, sort of looking sort of like a PDF page maybe, or just a white box, however you choose to, to think of it, but it does look vaguely letter size to me, or A4 size. And in the lower left corner you should see a little box that's been drawn. It, it might be hard to tell because if your window has black borders, then this box might almost look like part of the window. But that's the draw the box that we just drew. It's down at zero, it goes up for thirty pixels or picas or something, and then over and then down and then back over. Okay, so that, that was a success. But now let's do something a little bit different and turn that turn the, the black and white box into something a little bit more colorful. So I'm gonna comment out set gray and the comment to, to comment something in a postscript file it's percent percent. So you, you just precede the line with two percent signs. And instead of just doing a set gray, we're gonna do we're gonna set a RGB color and we can do that with um, the the standard sort of if you've ever done any kind of RGB color definition then you'll know that there's um, there are values for values for red so that would be let's just do um, let's do one for red and then the next one would be green so we'll just do a zero for that and then we'll do one for so 101 and that's one space zero space one space set RGB color space fill and then we're gonna follow that line with G restore G restore and then we'll end the program with stroke again now if we open that up with ghost script ghost script example one ps we get that same big piece of paper, but in the lower left corner, you'll see a sort of a um, magenta 
not sort of, it will be a magenta box. It is one red value, it's one blue value, mix those together, you get magenta, and that's what you see in the lower left corner. Now you could move that box, and I'm sure you can figure out how to do that, right? Instead of instead of uh, starting at 30, or rather at 0, you could start at, I don't know, 10, and go out until 60 maybe, and then mess around with 60 a lot, and then go back to 10, and then go script example, and now you've moved that box in you know, sort of in towards the center of the page by a very, very small amount, but that still does it. So that's that's the the real, real basics of GhostScript. Not super useful. You're probably not going to hand code this anytime soon, but at least now we understand what GhostScript is looking at and what exactly it's it's parsing for us. Okay, so we already know that um, PostScript. I said earlier that that we could set the the paper size of of what PostScript's output is, right? And I said that that was GhostScript dash s for string, and then paper size all in capitals, and then you know whatever size paper you want. So I don't know anymore the U.S. sizes of pages and and. Even when I did, I only knew of two. There was letter and legal. Uh, but the the system used for um, for a like the European definition or whatever that is, like A4, A3, whatever. I, we use it here in New Zealand, so it's kind of the one that I've started to actually pay attention to, and it's it is kind of nice. Uh, and I say it's kind of nice because it has a predictable. It's it's sort of this predictable metric where it gets. You, you basically take a, a full sheet of paper, cut it in half, and now you have the next size down. So for instance, if you have an A1 sheet, cut that in half, now you have two A2s. Cut that in half, now you have two A3s. Cut that in half, now you have two A4s, and so on. So now let's try to do an example of, of a filter which is pretty simple. So we're gonna do GS-S paper size equals, for instance, a4 example1.ps now on my screen i have got eh, pretty much actually what i had before it, so that leads to me to leads me to believe that a4 was indeed the default display but let's let's modify that command and do a5 instead and sure enough now on my screen i have approximately uh, half of what i saw before but but sort of flipped over on its on its side such that it's still in portrait mode and i've got my little box there at the lower left corner and i could do an a6 and get a smaller a, a, a box a smaller size page still so that's sort of those filters that's what's happening is that you're saying well here's this this postscript file for which no dimensions have been set right all we did was we said draw a box in the lower left corner of the page but we are manipulating the page through a ghost script filter and that's kind of what ghost script that's that's what it's doing when you send a a page to your printer, that's the kind of information that it's processing. That's what it's adjusting. And now you've done it manually. But that's not all GhostScript can do. So I used to hear a lot about PDF editors, which were, I guess, are um, applications that let you manipulate PDF files, which, you know, kind of on the, like, it's a bad idea, right? Because PostScript is ugly. It's a really, really ugly program, uh, yeah, programming language, as you can probably tell from the 472 lines that it takes to produce the letter G. And and even our little box, I mean, you can kind of tell how that's pretty, it's, it's kind of a weird little language. Now, to be, to be fair, I'm using PostScript in this example at its most basic, and I'm not using any of its, um, any of its built-in shapes and so on. So if you were to build, if you, if you needed to draw, for instance, a circle, you wouldn't have to do that manually. You wouldn't have to sit there and code every single pixel. Believe me, there's a there's a circle function in PostScript, so you're fine. But 
um, I, I just I don't think PostScript is really designed for heavy um, sort of manipulation, and certainly the PDF format, which is PostScript in in a in a container, um, I don't think is designed for that. So editing PDFs to me just kind of seems like it's a a, a road that you probably don't really want to go down, and yet you do get these. Uh, things that you need to edit. You know, you get these files as PDFs and you, you realize, oh, well, that's, there's a typo there, or or that box is too far over to the right, or, or that box is too much, would, would cause my printer to use too much ink, or whatever the case. So you've got to edit it sometimes, which is, that's what files are for, right? The data. You want to edit the data. And so apparently there are f- uh, programs out there that edit PDFs in a very kind of graphical way, and, and I think think I've heard that Adobe Acrobat Professional or something like that, like not just the reader, but like the program, I guess, that Adobe uh, distributes or sells rather to actually produce PDFs sort of by default. Um, you know, if, if there was no open source world, then this would be the only way to produce a PDF. This would be it. This would be the PDF studio of, of, of computers. And apparently that can edit PDFs uh, pretty well. Now, I've I've never had the need to do an editing of a PDF in that way, uh, and in 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 cases where I need to edit PDFs, it is often just sort of chopping them up, which I do with tools like PDFTK. And to produce them, I generally use either FOP or um, XML2 or not XML2, um, Pandoc um, or I guess technically Pandoc is using uh, PDF Latex. So so yeah, I, I use other programs to generate the PDFs. And I guess in a pinch I could even use CUPS, which I would imagine is using GhostScript on the back end because GhostScript does conversion. Uh, but the other way that I've used, or the other way that I've edited PDFs when I have to actually edit sort of the content of the PDF is GhostScript. GhostScript can edit, it can manipulate PDFs in a lot of different ways. And I think for a lot of people, this is where GhostScript could be potentially the most useful. Now, to find that the, the thing that you need to do, I will admit, I think you, you kind of have to probably find the thing that you want to do frequently to a PDF, and then look at GhostScript and find out what function or what uh, what it has in its little system dictionary to adjust the thing that you want to adjust. It, it isn't one of the, it's, it's a vast, it has vast, uh, a very vast set of commands. It has a lot of access to a lot of different postscript functions, but it, it's, it's a little bit difficult to string it all together if you don't know exactly sort of what you want to do in the first place. Um, and and it, it would be kind of neat if there was maybe somewhere somebody could maybe, you know, like for image magic, Let's let's think about image magic for a min- for a moment. If you've ever used image magic, you know that there's just an impossible number of options for image magic. You can do all kinds of things. You can do crazy things with image magic. You can draw entire pictures, you can edit photographs, you can do everything. But doing all of that with image magic is just it's a monumental job. It, it's it would be like programming an entire application, but all you're doing is just programming an image and it's it's rarely worth it. But when you find those things that you need to do on a regular basis, you spend the time, you go to Image Magic, you look at all the different recipes and the, the how-tos and the examples, and you figure out what you need to tell Image Magic to do reliably, repeatedly, and then it's great. You know, you've, you've essentially used this, this front end to develop a custom solution for some task that you have to do. You know, when anyone 
upgrades a file to your server or you know whenever you're um, processing a uh, hundred photographs and you need to I don't know watermark them or crop them in a certain way or whatever that's kind of like GhostScript you're not gonna you're not gonna open up GhostScript and discover a bunch of cool things to do with it it's something that you're gonna have to do a little bit of research figure out what you want to do and then do the thing so what on earth could you do well there's a bunch of things that you can do as as you can imagine otherwise I wouldn't be talking about it probably um, and one of the things is, for instance, changing what fonts are embedded in a PDF. This is admittedly a little bit of a special use case, probably, but um, I, I find it really, really useful because there have been times when PDFs uh, are generated from some program that doesn't embed a font that you need to guarantee is going to be in that PDF. Now, this is course i mean this is exactly where this is you know one of those things about pdf that just it's problematic but pdfs can be created that you know with a specific font on someone's system and then they export the thing and send it out without sending the font along with the pdf because obviously it's on their system they don't even they probably don't even realize that they've sort of accidentally included it in the, in the pdf and 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 they don't know to embed the font so it, the PDF ships out, it can't find the font, so it just does some wacky, weird replacement. You know, it just finds the closest thing to whatever font it thinks might be on your system and, and puts it in there. And a lot of times that equates, it, it ends up meaning that it can't find anything to substitute. And so it just, it just lets your system, it just uses your system fallback, you know, some open sans font nothing wrong with open sans understand it's just probably not the font that was meant to be in the pdf like whatever default system font you have it just plugs it in there so if you need to embed a font into a, a pdf file you can do that with ghost script once the pdf exists so we're assuming that you have a pdf that either someone has sent you without a font and you've emailed them and said hey what font am I supposed to be using with this pdf or you're sending someone you're sending someone a pdf and you're not uh, confident that a PDF has been embedded, uh, a font has been embedded into it. So the uh, way to do that would be uh, gs space dash s font path, and then the path to whatever directory contains the font that you want to embed. If there are a couple of fonts that you need to embed, uh, you can just point it to your your font folder in general, and it will it will find that font, it, or it will find that collection of font. And then dash o for output. So this is the the new PDF that you want to create. So this would be you know output dash with dash fonts or something like that dot PDF. And then dash s device equals PDF write. So this is the conversion. Um, or, or part of the conversion setup of, of GhostScript. And the device name or the device value can be, as we've already seen, it can be like a printer, but it could also be an output file or a pipe or a standard out. So the, the device in this case is PDF write, meaning that we're just gonna, we're gonna write a PDF to, a, to, to the hard drive. And then we'll do a dash D for um, PDF settings equals Prepress so that we're preserving all of the uh, really nice format or the um, the highest resolution and so on. Uh, and I should mention that before prepress, that's a forward slash because that's how GhostScript or PostScript um, denotes the um, d denotes the different settings. There's a couple of different settings I've mentioned them in previous episodes. There's like prepress and ebook I think and screen and print. 
a couple of different ones like that. Uh, and then, of course, the input file. So that would just be, you know, I don't know, example one. Well, example one would be, yeah, so example.ps, because that's the one with the letter G in. Uh, and then you press return, and it, it processes your file. And it kind of it does this sort of scary, well, it depends on what the file is. Um, that example one isn't valid because it's not a PDF. Um, let's do, uh, I don't know, example.pdf. We'll just pretend like we had a PDF there. It does this account through each page as it processes it, I think. Maybe I'm, I might be thinking of a different process actually, but yeah, that's how you embed a font. It's as simple as that. You just font path equals and you point it to your font directory and then essentially just tell it to recreate the PDF, but with the with, with a new font path available to it, which, as I say, people often don't do that. They, they very frequently do not embed fonts in even PDFs, which always kind of surprises me because um, I kind of feel like PDFs, one of the points of PDFs is for it to sort of encapsulate everything, or at least that's what I thought. So I thought it would be more of a, a default setting, but apparently not because I get I get PDFs without the proper fonts in there a lot. Okay, so there's there there are still more things that GhostScript can do, and one of them is remove images. And I've I've talked about this in previous episodes, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go too far into this, but I will just kind of read it out just so you can hear some of the the types of of options. Uh, GhostScript GS dash s device equals pdf write. So right there you know that we're going to just write out the pdf. Dash d compatibility level equal 1.4. PDFs um, generally tend, as far as I can tell, to be pretty pretty nicely backwards compatible, but as Adobe just keeps throwing in features that the, the, there is a certain concern about how far back a pdf can go. So uh, just to make sure that you're not including anything weird, I, don't th I like to a lot of times say, yeah, compatibility, go back to like 1.4. Um, I think that's the farthest I've ever gone back, and I don't remember why. I think I just saw it in Scribus once, and I thought, well, that seems like a good old number. Uh, I have no idea what, what level we're on now. Dash D, PDF settings equals, and then that forward slash, and then whatever the setting is. And like I say, there's a couple of different settings. There's like ebook, there's um, print, there's screen, I think. There's a couple of different ones. Unfortunately, these are really difficult to find out, and basically you have to go read PostScript documentation to find out what all of the different, uh, the, the, the constants and the variables happen to be. Dash D, no pause, just means to keep going. Dash D, batch, dash S, output file equals, and then the name of your desired output file, and then dash D, filter image, and that does it. Filter image drops all the images from a PDF. So if you ever have a PDF that you think, well, there's no way that this is going to work for me. This has got too many images in it. It's got a big background image and so on. Filter image, and GhostScript will provide you a PDF without any images in it. Now, in practice, what I do is I kind of leverage PDF TK alongside of GhostScript. So if there's, you know, like five pages of something that is is just basically PostScript text and then one big page of, of image plus text, then I, I very frequently just... I chop up the PDF, I grab that one page with the image, extract, you know, filter the image out, and then put it back in to the, the flow with PDFTK. And that generally kind of works for me. There's so much more GhostScript can do, and, and like I say, a lot of it is wrapped up in PostScript. So if you want to get really good at GhostScript, you would uh, go study up on PostScript. I, I don't wish that upon anyone, I'm just saying that's the method that you would use to make that work. Get good at PostScript so you could then understand what the heck you're telling GhostScript to do. But GhostScript itself is a very, very useful tool. It will 
it, it can do all kinds of cool things as you've probably already seen i mean i don't know i think the things i've talked about so far are very useful for me at least um and there's just a bunch more. I mean, there really is. There's there's so many other things that you can do with it. You can um, remap fonts. So if you don't like a font in a PDF, you could say, okay, find this font and change it to this one. So if you get a font, you're, a PDF with a font that you're not allowed to redistribute or something, or you're not allowed to, to sell, I don't know, um, or, or whatever, you just want to change the font, you can do that with GoScript. You don't have to go in and, like, I don't know, edit the PDF in some weird... GUI application, you don't have to get the source of the PDF, you can just remap the font with, with GhostScript, and that's a, a find font and a subst font. There's, um, there are all the filters that I've talked about, I'm trying to think of what else really there is. Um, renumbering pages, how could I have forgotten that one? Yeah, so there's the dash, uh, I think it's a dash D option, dash D first page equals, and then a page number. So if you've ever gotten one of those PDFs where it's a a scan of an old book or something and the book starts uh, you know with a front cover and then it has an intro or like a pre uh, maybe a, a title page and then a preface and then finally it starts you know and, and a lot of those are maybe x you know uh, roman numerals so it's i and i i and i i i iv you know what a roman numeral is uh, and then finally it gets to page one problem is now that your pdf is probably numbered page one from the front cover two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So by the time you get to the page one of the book, your PDF thinks that you're on page ten. And so now, or, or worse yet, eleven. And I say worse yet because now that now there's no real consent, you know, the, the, the math is difficult. You can't just say, okay, whenever I see a page, I'll just, I'll think of it as, I'll add a zero to the end of it. it it's all thrown off. So if you reprocess a, a PDF with GhostScript and tell it dash D first page, and you can tell it to start its page numbering at anything that you want. And you can realign, you know, at your sort of your PDF reader page count with the printed pages in the PDF. Hugely useful. I use it all the time. Um, I use it a lot in, in game books because a lot of game books, you know, they'll say page, turn to page 33. Well, that's fine for the paperback, but but for the PDF, that's it's a completely different page, and so that makes the the task a lot more difficult. So, GhostScript ships with a pretty good documentation. If you look up the documentation, you can scroll through all the different commands that it's got, all the different device settings, all the different uh, string uh, string values that it's aware of. You can add to those as well, but that's a little bit more complex. Um, and it's a really, really useful command for anyone who needs to mess around with PDFs. And like I say, PDFs, it's not really so much that I like messing around with PDFs as it is just kind of admission that, that I get a lot of PDFs in my life. I've, I, it's one of those things that you're just not going to be able to get away from. So knowing how to, to use them effectively is a really, really powerful powerful thing and hopefully ghost script is uh, something that will help you figure that out that's about all the time we have for today so hey thanks for listening i'll talk to you next time Listening to the GNU World Order Og Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Free Node network usually in 
channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is NotClatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Clatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at Clatu at member.fsf.org. That's Clatu at member.fsf, as in Free Software Foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, GNUWorldOrder.info and SlackerMedia.info. I will see you next time. Fascination was the result of the climate of hate. Climate of hate means that this is this is the result of something.